Welcome to Author News Weekly, the weekly news show by authors for authors. We read the news so you don't have to. Join our panel of best-selling authors each week as we take a deep dive into the publishing world, both indie and traditional. Author News Weekly. Yeah, whatever. Welcome back to Author News Weekly. Thanks for joining us. I'm Ari McGee. I am joined, as always, by Nick Thacker. Hey, that's me. Jim Heskett. Good to be here. And Pippa Werner. Hello. What's going on, party people? How you guys doing? Not a mucho. Running around like a chicken with my head cut off, getting ready for Vegas. Oh, that's right. That's right. Well, good times. I'm rooting for you guys out there in the big bad world. I'm going to stay tucked away in my house and You're enjoy my. For us. What's happening in Vegas that I don't know about? Situation. Yeah, whatever whatever it, is, it stays in Vegas. Have you seen Squid Games? Because I hear they're bringing one to Vegas. Although I did hear that somebody did the Squid Games for real in the last couple of weeks and three people died. Whoa. Yeah, yeah, real talk. I have to send you guys a link to it. Like three people died. They found them in a dumpster or in a dump somewhere. Yeah, it's pretty yeah. crazy. Pretty wow. crazy indeed. You think people would go, let's emulate this, like, and understand that people died when that's the whole point of it. But I don't know. I don't know what's wrong with people. People are dumb. People are dumb. Well, are super dumb. Yeah, people is dumb. You are right. All right. So I think that we should probably start this show off the right way. And I think that we should get into the news. Well done, sir. Well done. Thank you. All right. I appreciate that. First story that we've got here. Let's talk about lawsuits. This comes to us from CNBC. And it says the Justice Department files an antitrust suit to block a $2 billion merger of Penguin, Random House, and Simon & Schuster. The administration said of the proposed merger, it would likely harm competition in the publishing industry. That loss of competition would undermine authors' powers to obtain advances and other services crucial for their books and careers, the DOJ's antitrust division said in a civil lawsuit. So let's talk about this and the ramifications of this. Jim, what do you think about this thing, man? How is this all going to play out? And do you think it's a necessary uh, thing for the DOJ to be doing? It's kind of hard to comment on this without straying into political opinion territory, but I think that this probably will go through eventually. You know, if not now, they'll try it again during the next administration. And, you know, the next time there's a different person in office, they may be able to get it through. I can't see any way how this merger is good for indie authors. I could see how the merger being blocked is better for indie authors because what I'm, you know, it's no secret that TradPub hates us because we're actively doing their business better than they are, just like that Childish Gambino song. And I worry if they keep consolidating that they will eventually become more powerful than Amazon and be able to dictate terms to Amazon. Things like, you know, we want you to push self-published books down. We don't want self-published books to rank. And Amazon will have no choice but to say yes when they're dealing with the big one. You know, and the publishing company can say, you're going to put our books, TradPub books, near, always near the top, or we're just not going to give you any TradPub books. So that's what I'm afraid of. So I think the merger not going through is probably better for us. On a micro level, it doesn't really affect us that much on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm. That sounds very learned, Jim. Thank you Thank for you. your learned opinion. <laughs> Pippa. Wait, this way. Pippa, what you got? <laughs> Well, I saw someone say earlier this week that it was refreshing to see 
an antitrust filing that was about the authors, not the readers. And so I thought that was just a good point to bring back up that the people were saying, you know, authors need to be able to make a living. They need to be able to create and plan things out and to have advances. And that's already going down the tubes. And let's stop that slide. And that's, I think that's worth um, celebrating, however briefly, if Jim is right. As I recall, book sales are an astonishingly small, like less than 1% of Amazon's revenue. So I would be less worried about the trad published authors being able to dictate quite as much, or the trad publishers, not the authors, but monopolies aren't good for a free market. Like that's just indisputable. So hashtag capitalism. Nick, what you got, man? That's good stuff. The only thing I'll add is I don't usually talk about the woe of the traditionally published author, but I do think that if this does not go through, it could be potentially very bad for traditional authors. Mm-hmm. If Simon and Schuster ends up, you know, if they're in trouble, you know, financially in trouble, and it, it, there's some implication that they, they might be, but I don't read their prospectus. I don't know. If there's some issues there, the first thing to go is going to be the liability lines, right? And that's all the books, all the contracts. They're going to sell pennies on the dollar to some other company, maybe not all to Penguin Random House or some other, somebody else, but you know, they're going to have to have a fire sale on these books effectively, these book contracts. And that's just not going to end up being good for the authors. If they do merge, it's not going to be good for the authors either. <laughs> so I think uh, that's kind of the bottom line here is, mm. well, you know what? It doesn't really matter what's going to happen. Authors are going to get hosed because what else is mm. new? Yes. Take control of your own destiny, people. Figure something else out. Because Take control of your own destiny and publish exclusively awesome. with Amazon and be at their beholden. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe. Uh, Go wide. <laughs> yeah, right. Go wide. Because there's so much money wide. Uh-oh. <laughs> Round one. Fight. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have Tell to me one this. other bookseller besides Amazon that actually knows what the hell to do to sell books. Oh, they don't know what the hell to do, but their customers are very, very loyal. All four of them? <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, usually Kobo or Barnes & Noble. Sometimes Apple is giving Amazon a run for its money one-on-one. Hmm. So. Interesting. So the ideal being that you're, instead of being a medium fish in a huge pond, you're a medium fish in a little pond. Maybe you can attract a little more love that way when you're wide? Yeah. The wide mantra is bank over rank. So it's a large group of people that you've probably never seen on the bestseller list. A comfortable, solid six figures a year. I like six figures. Good times. All right. We'll talk more about that some other time. (laughs) But that's good. I'm glad. I want you guys. This is healthy. I think we need to fight more on this show. You guys are all getting along too easily. And I want a little bit of vitriol. We're getting more into the Squid Games thing. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. That's what's coming next. Great line. Next week's show, I'm going to have the Dr. Doom mask on. All right. The next story that we've got here is from booksbywomen.org. Women writers, women books. Hopefully they'll allow me to be on the webpage, not kick me out. It's called Unstuck, Writing the Beginning Over and Over. This says that every writer gets stuck at one time or another. Being stuck can trigger feelings of anxiety and self-doubt, but it doesn't have to spell the end of your project. So my question is, they're talking about getting stuck as you try to find your way into your story. What would you guys do to kind of make sure that you don't get stuck? But more importantly, thinking about cycling through the beginning of the story and over and over, 
put in my mind the ideal of the first line and it's kind of the mantra that they tell everyone right like your first line has to be killer people are going to read your first line or they're going to get rid of your book do you guys think the first line is that important and how do you guys make sure that you craft an early portion of your story that makes you feel good i don't know whatever pippa save me from talking please (laughs) um i viewed the first chapter i think it is deeply important most of the books that i put down i put down within the first few paragraphs so at least for me it is but i don't polish my introduction until i have an entire draft because i don't always need to know exactly what it needs to set up until then so i don't go back to the introduction in terms of having it completely finished until the whole book's there Okay. Well, no, I mean, you kind of answered that. So I was looking a little further down uh, where Kara Black was kind of talking about. She says, and I kind of like this quote of hers. It says, struggling my way into a story is the beginning of my writing process. And so I kind of like the way that sounds. Jim, what about you, man? What about the early parts of the book? Does any of this ring, ring true to you at all? Well, I always make sure that I give my first chapter a couple of extra smoothing passes when I'm working on it. I don't worry too much about the first line. There was a guy, I don't remember the website now, but you could send him the first page of your manuscript and he would critique your book based only on the first page. And I thought that was really harsh at the time. I was thinking that, you know, that readers would give you more than one page to decide whether or not they like it. But looking back and now, he's absolutely right. And so what I always try to make sure that I do early on is no matter what the story is about or it's going to be about, I just try to make sure that that first chapter has lots of intrigue in it, that I open lots of loops in that first chapter. And I basically just do that by withholding exposition. You know, I tell you that a character is doing something and make the reader want to know why. And I don't tell them because I withhold part of their backstory that would explain why this is happening. And I find that's usually pretty effective at getting people to push forward. When it comes to getting stuck, I don't know. I've kind of been stuck in my current story. So I'm a little bit in this article and I don't like it. (laughs) <laughs> you feel personally attacked a little You're bit yeah. In this article and you don't. <laughs> yeah i don't like it yeah nick how shiny do you make your first chapter man well i'm gonna say pretty shiny but i don't think i'm a great writer and you know i know how to sell books and market books probably more than i know how to write them well so that said i try to get them as shiny as possible because i'm pretty lazy i don't want to do a ton of like rewriting and rework i do think that these you know, I, I read a little bit about at least um, Martha Conway, the, the person being quoted here in the article. I think they're a little bit more literary. And I think that's a different beast than the genre fiction, the commercial fiction that I write, the trash novels, airport novels, I was they were called once. <laughs> so I think, you know, if you're writing literary fiction and you have a traditional publishing contract, which my assumption is these people do, you just have more time to do all this crap. Like you literally can spend a year writing your book where, you know, I can't. I know Martha says, uh, sorry, Sarah Stone is the person quoted here. It says, early drafts are a place for play and discovery. So rather than going back to tidy it up when we get a new idea, it's great to write a lumpy, mixed up version that switches modes and voices and jumps from place to place. One that starts too early in the story or too late. I'm like, no, it's not. That's not a place at all for that for me. It's my job, damn it. So I got to, you know, write a first draft and get done so I can write the second draft so I can release the damn thing so I can make money. I I respect that these women are coming from a completely different perspective on this, but that's not my perspective at all. Writing a book is like wedding planning. It will expand to fit all of the time you give it. Mhm. Is that Moore's law? Yeah. Moore's other law? 
Yeah. So there's the good advice in here about the unstuck stuff, but I kind of take issue with the whole idea that like, oh, you know, it doesn't matter. Just spend all this time and it's all foo-foo-y and, you know, fluffy and happy. And I'm just like, well, whatever. My readers expect books. You don't frolic your way through the first draft. I I do not. I understand. I do like what Kara, was it, was it Kara Black said, you know, kind of taking it back to character, you know, go back to character. If you're stuck, ask yourself what your character wants in that scene. If your character wants nothing, the scene is unnecessary and it'll likely block your forward movement. I think that's pretty solid. You know, people should always have a motivation, even if they seem like they're not that important to your story. So, all right. Good times, guys. So I thank the ladies at Women Writers, Women Books for allowing me to visit their page and not kicking me off. So, all right, guys. The next story that we've got here is from Christine (laughs) Catherine Rush. If anyone hasn't heard of Christine Catherine Rush, she does really good stuff. She's got a very interesting take, her and her husband, Dean Wesley Smith. And so she's talking about backlist and how the book business doesn't always get the most out of their backlist that they can. And so, like, for instance, it says, you know, you think award winners would be collected and feted. You'd think that classic novels would remain in print, but you'd be wrong. And so a lot of the story in this story is people not maximizing their backlist, even trad people, trad businesses. So how can we avoid falling into that trap as indies? And what sort of things are you guys doing to keep your backlist relevant? Because they tell us that you need a lot of books uh, to help sell the books, but then people forget about their backlist. So what would you do? Uh, Let's see. Who am I going first? How about Nick? What sort of things do you do to keep your backlist refreshed and sexy? Well, I'm not sure about the sexy part. I saw Harvey Bennett short, bro. I've read Harvey Bennett. Oh, that's not even my backlist. There are so many books that no one's ever heard of before (laughs) down that backlist, the bottom of that barrel. The first, first and foremost, and this is a component of my talk and presentation I've been working on lately. I'll be doing that in Vegas. This will come out probably after the 20 books conference. But if you're there and, you know, it has come out for some strange reason, come find me. The tack I like to take is um, iterative. So instead of approaching a book as if it's done, I approach it as if it's ready. Meaning like it's ready for people to read it and it's ready to see, but it's not complete. It's not finished. I don't mean the story is not done or there's, you know, problems and plot holes and errors. I've gotten it as good as possible quality wise, but I'm not going to just let it sit and languish in obscurity after it's launched. So the iterative process for me is essentially releasing it and getting as much I can out of it as far as you know income and getting in the hands of the readers and all that, but then taking that early feedback and fixing the book up. And then after a year or so, I will often go back and rewrite sections that I have learned are not as strong or, you know, I read all my reviews, for example, and usually... I'm not going to take one review and and agree and say, okay, well, I need to go fix this because this random reviewer said so. But if you have 300 reviews that are all pointing to the same problem, that problem is often easily fixable. So I will go back and change that stuff. So I've never approached any of my old books as books that I wrote and I can't touch because they're already written. I want them all to feel like I just polished them and wrote them yesterday, if that makes sense. Okay. So that's one of your tips for keeping individual books evergreen, so to speak. That's the idea. Yeah. Because I don't really typically write anything that's time-based or time-sensitive. I don't write politics. And so most of my books are designed to be able to be enjoyed anytime in the past or future, you know, within reason. All right. Jim, what about you, man? What do you got? Well, the crux of this article, this thing about intellectual property being the new prime time is pretty interesting. 
because you know 10 years ago we didn't really have streaming services and so there wasn't this kind of capacity with the idea being that what ip is the new prime time means is that all these networks are realizing that having a huge catalog of shows can get people into their streaming services and that it's their backlog of TV shows that makes the streaming services attractive, not the new content they're making. And this is kind of interesting the way Christine Catherine Rush compares it to books. I don't know if it's exactly synonymous because, you know, you always could able could go to Amazon and get any author's complete backlist. But, you know, 20 years ago, like if you liked the TV show Friends and you wanted to see it in reruns, you could go onto a network and be like, okay, it's on at this time on this day this time on this day. But now you don't have to do that. You can just go onto a service and access the entire thing. And you've always been able to do that with books. So I'm not sure if the comparison is a one-to-one -one here, but it's kind of interesting to think about how you should deal with your backlist because my backlist is my favorite thing. After my newsletter, my backlist is my most important thing. And I'm lucky enough that I have a few series. And once you have a series, it's pretty easy to pulse and promote your series. All you really have to do is make the first book free for a little while, and then you get read through for the rest of it. And so I take advantage of usually at least a couple times a year, I take advantage of Amazon's five free KDP days. And I have a couple of standalone novels, and I will sometimes price them down to 99 cents. I don't do free giveaways on standalone novels. There's no point in that. But yeah, that's about it. Right on. Miss Werner, what you got? Heavily using the free days. I actually just have standing free first in series, and I rotate promos on all of those. Try to, you know, rotate various newsletters that are five or ten dollars. And that does keep a sort of a constant stream of people going. And then occasionally I will package the first few books in a series and launch those all together. And that gets a surprisingly large number of downloads and read through. And yeah. So did I hear you say you're doing like perma free for some of your series? Yep. So perma-free was something I heard about a lot when I was first starting out. I don't hear about it as often anymore. No. What do you guys think? Is that still pretty viable? Or what are you guys kind of hearing from your experience, uh, Pippa, or, or anyone who's kind of had their ear to the ground it over there? It still seems to be working well. It's more difficult to get a BookBub for. But like BookBub is skewing now more heavily to either high-priced and discounted single books or box sets single user box sets. Mm. So like I had good luck with a discounted quartet in a book bub, but it's more difficult to get permafreeze in. They want something that's an unusual deal. Yeah. They don't make any affiliate money on those permafree sales either. Yep. So occasionally you do see the free ones still still get book bubs, but if it's not a usual deal, an unusual deal, they're not gonna do that. But it gets a steady stream of readers and on non-Amazon platforms, I find that I have a much higher read-through, like up to 10 times higher read-through from a free. Hmm. Um, so. Okay, good times. You gents got anything to add in on that? Nope. All right. Let's move on to the next story, which <laughs> is from The Guardian. And the title is actually Female Spanish Thriller Writer. Carmen Mola revealed to be three men. So I can't help but just picture, apparently they outed themselves at a, an award show. They went up and accepted the award and people realized there was no Carmen Mola. There was just these three guys <laughs> who were using her as a pen name. And so I really, in my mind, the headcanon is 
they were three guys with like a really big raincoat and like they walked up there and then they like took the sombrero off or the fedora off i should say and then they're like ha surprise it's us and everyone kind of freaked out so uh do you guys have an opinion this seems to be a divisive issue some people are hating on them for appropriating a woman's name and not being a woman some people don't care what do you guys think about this whole situation jim what do you got I understand why probably your average civilian is upset about it, but being an author, I know lots of people who do this. <laughs> it's not surprising to me at all. What is surprising is that I never heard of Detective Elena Blanco before, but she loves grappa karaoke, classic cars, and sex in SUVs. And nobody <laughs> could figure out that was a male writer. That, uh, <laughs> in hindsight, it seems pretty obvious now, but I don't know. I don't have a lot to say about this other than it doesn't really surprise me. This happens way more than people probably realize. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what? I don't know. Pippa, what do you think? I don't know. I could go either way on this one. I'm less upset because there was, I forget who it was. I'll try to find the citation on this, but someone sent out duplicated queries, like word for word, the same, except with a masculine and feminine name. Mm-hmm. and got wildly more responses on the masculine pen name. Mm. So it's like, well, theoretically, they hamstrung themselves. The question is, did they get other considerations? Someone was like, wow, this is a female writer, but they're really nailing that male perspective. I like sex and SUVs too. Like, wow, <laughs> I was like, yeah, since I read that, I was like, go on. <laughs> You're writing me. I never knew I needed that in my authors. Um, but yeah, it depends. I mean, like the guy who wrote the Expanse series is two people. People use different pen names all the time. It's from that end. I really don't care. Yeah. Also, I ghostwrite for people, so. Yeah, I dig it. I dig it. All right, Nick, what do you got? Put an exclamation point on this issue for me. You know, with Pip, I can go both ways. I get it. I think there would be more. Well, let me try to say this the right way. I think I could empathize more if this had been three female authors writing under a male pen name, because it would just sort of prove exactly what Pip is talking about. You know, I, I've experienced this too. I'm publishing books now, and we have female authors who are publishing under initials. Mm. Well, I think it just takes the the sex out of it, right? And I think, you know, hey, I get it. I guess if people want to make money, they do certain things certain way. I think they lose it loses a lot of weight for me because these are three men publishing under a female pin name. So it's like, well, okay, and it kind of goes against clearly you guys all like these men's work. Mm. Anyway, so all that to say, I'm a little I don't know, the the person one at least one of the people they chose to quote is this self-declared feminist writer and activist. Mm. And that pretty much tells me a little bit about that person's personality. Just going to go ahead and say that. Mm. And she seems annoying to me. That's all. She calls them scammers on Twitter and big profile. They've been readers in journal. They took in readers in journal. It's like she feels personally attacked and slighted because these people have made a mockery of women or something somehow is how it comes across. And I think that's all bullshit. Anyway, that's all I got to say about that. I could... (laughs) I could at least get into the people are assuming when they pick up this book that this is a woman talking about women. Hmm. And so people are coming away from this being like, but Carmen Mola says this about women and she's a woman. So. Well, okay. So the very last paragraph of this article, it doesn't feature Blanco, their female character, Mm -hmm. the book that won. No. (laughs) 
It doesn't feature Blanco at all. It's a historical thriller set in 1834 during a cholera epidemic about a serial killer who dismembers girls. First of all, anyone voting for this book to be like, you know, a great prize winning book. I'm like, you guys, true crime. That scares me. There's too much scary stuff in the world. You guys need to read some happy stuff. Go read Harry Potter again. That should just win every year. I, uh, oh, no, we canceled J.K. Rowling, didn't we? We can't talk about that anymore either. <laughs> I don't cancel anybody, my friend. Everyone I is love- welcome. Oh, dude, you're missing out. It's like the easiest way to take out your vitriol nah. on the world. One of uh, speaking of true crime books, one of my friends was talking about she they was in the lunchroom with one of her coworkers, and her coworker said, "Oh, what are you reading right now?" And she's like, "Oh, it's this romance. It's these two guys and blah blah blah." And she said, "My coworker cut me off. He's like, I don't." Like, that's just not applicable to me. I don't read romances with two guys. It's not a thing. She's like, oh, what are you reading? She's like, oh, this true crime book about a serial killer. Like, but. Exactly. <laughs> I've been stacking bodies in my refrigerator for years, and you guys just don't know it. So doing research. It's very applicable. Very applicable. Well, all right, guys. I think that was a good take on all of our things. And I don't got anything else. So you guys got anything you want to add? No? I oh, I do. So. I yes. got one thing. Please. I want to clarify something. After the gym interview that came out a couple weeks ago, Ari, you asked me my favorite thriller and I hemmed and hawed and gave a couple of bad answers. And then I said, Hunt for Red October. Mm-hmm. I've had some time to think about it. Mm-hmm. And my favorite thriller is definitely Misery by Stephen King. Okay. Respect, respect. Well, I'm glad that you've corrected the record for your edification mm-hmm. based on you saying that, what was it, the drawing of two? You said lexicon and the drawing of the three were a couple the drawing of, of the options three. I gave. Based on you saying the drawing of the three, I actually got back into the Dark Tower series because of that interview. Read the drawing of three. I'm wrapping up the Wastelands right now by Stephen King. And uh, that's all because you touted it so highly. So we'll add your answer, but <laughs> the original ones still stand because I wouldn't be reading it if it wasn't one of your favorites. So Okay, okay, fine. All right, just so that. you guys know. All right, guys. <laughs> I got a question. Why does Nick hate me? (laughs) (laughs) We don't have time to get into that. (laughs) I know. We'll talk about it next time. We need to have a therapy session. All right. So for all of us at Author News Weekly, I'm Ari McGee saying this meeting is over. Goodbye, everybody. (laughs) 